0: Since you've seen the title of this episode, I'm guessing that you have experienced on some level a phenomenon called imposterism. It's generally referred to as imposter syndrome. And as you'll hear in this episode, my guests will be defining and challenging that term. But why do we feel it? And why do we hear that voice that says, you're not good enough to do this? Or another classic hit, just wait till they find out I'm a fraud. Turns out we are in good company. Albert Einstein, Meryl Streep, and Maya Angelou are among the many who have all experienced this. I am so delighted that my colleague, Dr. Jill Stoddard, a psychologist, TEDx speaker, and author has written a superb book on this topic. It's called Imposter No More. Overcome self-doubt and imposterism to cultivate a successful career. And as you'll read in the book and here in this interview, Jill is wise, kind, and super relatable. You'll learn much more about your inner critic, how to respond when it tells you not to go for what you want to go for, and so much more. So listen in as Jill and I talk about quieting your inner critic that keeps you from being held back by imposterism. Dr. Jill Stoddard, who has asked me to call her Jill, a hearty welcome to Super Psyched. Hi,
1: Adam. Thank you so much for having me.
0: I'm so stoked about your book. It is so timely. It is something I deal with. It's as if you entered the space between my ears and just went right into my limbic system and said, Hey, Adam, I wrote a book for you. And And I know so many people feel this sense of being an imposter. And one of the things I love about what you did is you actually have a new take on the whole concept of imposter syndrome. You've actually in some ways renamed it, but we're going to get to that in a sec. First off, for those who may have never heard of the term imposter syndrome, what is imposter syndrome?
1: It's really like an experience of intellectual phoniness or inadequacy where people question whether they really belong to an elite group. You know, they worry that they're not as competent as other people think they are. It's really like self-doubt where you're concerned that at any moment everyone else is going to find out the quote unquote truth about your inadequacy.
0: Yeah. And even Billy Crystal wrote a book If the title was Still Fooling Them. Oh, yes. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And you cite that this happens to a lot of Mm uber-competent people. You cite Albert Einstein, Meryl Streep, Maya Angelou, who I quote all the time. (laughs) It's like if the laundry list of incredibly, authentically awesome human beings who have experienced this phenomenon means that we mere muggles will experience it too. And for me, I remember my freshman roommate in college was a guy named David. Amazing human being, had no imposter syndrome whatsoever, from what I could tell. He would just go out and get it. And when asked, I would think, like, who Who does he think he is? I would never go after such big game. And he would actually get the results. And for me, it was that nagging voice of like, who, you? Really? you You have no business doing that. And it's taken a lot for me to get over that. So let's hear about how you decided to invest your time in writing this book?
1: Well, you know what they say, research is me-search, right? (laughs) And so just like you, I have had a number of these experiences. And what really got me interested wasn't just the fact that this phenomenon exists. It's that it seems like we can't outrun it. Like you just named all of these ridiculously successful people that no matter how many awards or prizes or accomplishments they got under their belts, it didn't silence that voice. And that was really the part that fascinated me because, you know, I think I I sort of knew it was normal to feel this way, maybe when I started graduate school or, you know, kind of earlier on in my career path. But then as I continued to achieve new things, I thought, well, once this happens, then I'll feel confident, right? And that just didn't happen. And the more I started talking to other successful professionals, I realized the same was true for them too. And I just thought, you know what, we need to be talking about this more. And the preliminary research I did, first of all, if you do a Google search, it's like millions, hundreds of millions of hits. But if you look at a scientific database, it's hundreds. I mean, so there's Mm. a lot out there, but it is not all empirical to say the least. And so much of the advice is about trying to boost your confidence and trying to think more positive thoughts about yourself. And, you know, I thought I've been trying to do that. I'm a psychologist, like I have skills and I've been trying to do that for a really long time and it hasn't worked. And so, you know, I think it's time to write a book to teach people a different way so that these thoughts and feelings don't hold them back. And if they're unable to feel confident or change their thoughts, that they can still move forward with the life and career they want in the presence of that inner voice and that self-doubt.
0: Yeah, you have a brand new take on imposter syndrome. What have you decided to rename it?
1: Well, I like the word imposterism. (laughs) But it's interesting. It's not so much a brand new take. This is me, the imposter, not wanting to take credit for something, right? But, (laughs) you know, when this phenomenon was identified back in the 70s, it was called the imposter phenomenon. And, you know, I think it's interesting that when Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes, both psychologists, first identified this, they thought it occurred only in high-achieving women. And we have since determined that that's not true. But at the time, that was what was believed to be true. And so then you take this phenomenon that occurs in women and all of a sudden out in the world, it starts getting called a syndrome. And I don't think that's a coincidence, right? I think that that is some evidence that there is sexism out in the world that if women are struggling with their self-confidence, it's because they have a disease or a disorder. It's a pathology. We already rebranded it. I want to go back to branding it as an imposter phenomenon or imposter thoughts and feelings or the imposter experience or, you know, just the shorthand of imposterism.
0: Right. And I love the old axiom of don't believe everything you think. Feelings are not Mm -hmm. facts. And one of the things that you so brilliantly do is kind of akin to what Jung would talk about. Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst of not becoming enlightened by spending time in the light, but spending time in the dark. And the way you do it, Is by spelunking into your consciousness and subconsciousness to get to know your inner critic well by knowing the voice. You've even given your inner critic a name and possibly a new name. (laughs) Let's let's talk about why is it important to know our inner critic and what is an inner critic?
1: I will say I'm like on the book tour doing lots of podcasts, and super psyched is gonna be the first one where I talk about my new inner critic oh. and where that came from. This is like brand new hot off the presses. So it seems to be the case that we all have inner critic, right? Like I do workshops constantly and I ask people to get in touch with a thought that gives them trouble, something that's probably been around for a while that feels true. Even if you rationally know, maybe it's not, it really feels true. And then after I give people a minute to do that, I say, okay, how many of you are saying, I don't really know what you're talking about. And of course, never has a single hand ever raised. And then I usually say, "Well, how many of you are thinking which one? I have so many and you know, then lots of hands raised." And so this seems to be a universal human experience. And if it's a universal human experience, then in my opinion, that simply means that it cannot be pathological. It cannot be a pathology that needs to be changed. And I have this very silly metaphor. I don't think I included it in this book. It might be in my last book. But I just love it. And it's like if a skunk came to you and was like, Doc, I've got this really big problem. Every now and then my butt gets really stinky and it's super <laughs> embarrassing and people head for the hills. You've got to help me. You've got to get rid of this stink. Like, what would you say to the skunk after you got over the fact that the skunk was talking in your office? Exactly. You'd be I like, what? But, but you're a skunk. Like, but, <laughs> this is how it works. This is how you're This built. is how it works. All skunks have this. And I can't get rid of your smell, but even if I could, I wouldn't because you'd be dead. Like there is a purpose for this, Right. And if all human beings have an inner critic and we think about science and evolution, then there must be a purpose. And if your listeners, if you and I, if we sit here for a second and try to think about like when that voice shows up and says, maybe you don't want to do this because you don't have anything valuable to say, or you might be outed as a fraud, that's coming from a place of like, I'm just trying to protect you from failure, humiliation, rejection, you know, shame, et cetera. So that's why I think, first of all, this is not a pathology that needs to be changed but you had asked, like, why is it important to get to know this inner critic? We've all got one. It's not pathological. It's there to help us, but it tends to do a lousy job when we listen to it. And then this is that thing that like, I don't know about you, but I've certainly tried to talk myself out of my inner critic. When my inner critic says, you're not good enough. I go, yeah, but like, look at all these things I've done. I'm good enough. And then my mind comes back with, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but our minds just don't, They don't lend themselves very well to being talked out of these like old, deep core beliefs. And so what I suggest in the book, and these are not my ideas, these come from acceptance and commitment therapy, the goal of which is greater psychological flexibility so we can show up and do what matters even in the presence of these difficult thoughts and feelings. And so one of the ways I like to deal with this inner critic is to name her, and for many years, her name has been Sheila. before we started recording, Adam played Oh Sheila for me <laughs> and I recognized it immediately. And it, that's all, that's also in the book. And, you know, I would say, okay, Sheila, I hear you. Like, I know you're just trying to protect me, but I've got this. And it's a way to get some distance from that voice. It's not going to make it go away. It's not going to magically make you feel confident, but it creates a space where a different choice can be made and you can be who you want to be you can do what you want to do and not listen to that inner critic like it's you know a dictator like it has the the key to some truth that you don't have
0: I love that and you went from one Aussie name Sheila to another Aussie name because i believe that the term that you now use is also a commonly used name in Australia. Is it really? It is. Well, I didn't a- know
1: she. Oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot Sheila. You're right. I didn't even think of that.
0: <laughs> and you, I've you-
1: always had this deep desire to visit Australia and I was supposed to study abroad and it fell apart at the last minute. Maybe that's a some sort of Jungian psychoanalytic self, subconscious synchronicity. thing too. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't love even think that. Of that.
0: Do you want to just out the name of your new one? Well, so or now instead so
1: of saying, you know, pipe <laughs> down, <laughs> Sheila, now what I say is not today, Kevin.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love that one so much.
1: <laughs> and where that this literally just happened over the last couple of weeks. So my book came out on September 19th, which is also my wedding anniversary. So I got it tattooed uh, on my
0: wrist, the date.
1: And... Can't write too many more books because I get a tattoo every time I publish a book. So my arm is going to become a sleeve if I write too many books. So. <laughs> so I, before the book even came out, you know, there are some people that some, I don't even know how it works, but they can sometimes read advanced copies. And so before my book even goes out in the world, which of course is a very vulnerable thing to do, Usually. very scary. I got a one-star review from a guy named Kevin. And it was painful, you know, and of course I thought, oh my, you know, I've only, I only have, I think, a total of four reviews and one of them already is a one star. This is like a bad sign, right? Devastating. Devastating. And I got really hung up on it. Now, I invite everyone to go read it. It's on Goodreads. The book is called Imposter No More. Go check it out on on Goodreads. Because after I read it a few times, I was able to get some distance from it and recognize that heaven just wanted a different book. He wanted a book that was going to teach him to get rid of his anxiety and to boost his confidence. And as I just explained, that's really not what this book is about. If I knew how to do that, I would do it. But like these things just (laughs) they don't work. There are a lot of books out there that claim to do that. And so far, I haven't really found many people that say like, oh, yeah, I read the book and now I'm super confident and I don't have an inner critic anymore.
0: And what's so funny is that we unwittingly go into contract with our readers who Assume a promise, perhaps, when they read the book based on their needs and possibly projected. And then they give it one star because there was this unilateral hope that it would deliver on the promise that was in there. Yeah. And my sons, who know me so well, you know, said, don't read the haters. And I know the haters are out there. They really can inflame our already existing imposterism. It's like, wow, they actually corroborate, they sing in concert with the inner critic, the Kevin or the Sheila who reside within any of us and it seems almost like they take us down and say see i told you you had no business writing this book why did you invest so much time in that and one of the things i do with my clients who are really on the precipice of doing something very courageous and we know you know from Brené Brown's work that a requirement for courage is vulnerability for a seasoned skydiver to jump out of a plane it requires no courage for me it would require immense courage for them it's not brave at all. They just do that. For me, it would be hugely brave and courageous. And one of the things I do when somebody's on the precipice of doing something and fearing that shame shower afterwards is I have them look at Sir Kenneth Robinson's TED Talk and to try to find haters. Sir Kenneth Robinson gave arguably one of the best TED Talks of all time. Have them look up a classic, a book that seems unassailable, and you will find one-star reviews from someone. And some of those one star reviews are kind of hilarious. And some of them have nothing to do with the book. Book arrived late.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like one star. It's like the wait, cover wait. was torn. One star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. So that's a really I love that. Thing. That's that's a great exercise. And that's a perspective taking exercise, really, because we're, you know, we're so hard on ourselves, but we would be very quick to point out to someone else that this is not indicative of some truth. And we have a really hard time doing that for ourselves. And again, because our brains are trying to protect us, but they overfocus on the perceived threat. 100%. Right? And we need to like broaden that field of vision and sort of take in all of the data, right? If you've got five five-star reviews and one one-star review, that math is important.
0: Indeed. And John Gottman came up with the magic ratio of 5 to 1. We need five goods. Oh yeah. To, you know, right. basically get into the net positive versus one bad. And just to be neutral, we need to be three to one. And so the four to one is kind of questionable. I wonder what happens in that in-between zone. But I ask anybody to think about a thing that went well where one thing bad happened. And the thing that we remember because of that negativity bias that has kept us alive for so many millennia has been that ability to overvalue the bad and allow it to just completely crush And Torpedo, let's talk about women and people of color and how, in many ways, they may be more vulnerable to imposterism.
1: Well, I think really anyone who has a history of marginalization and, you know, there are some studies that show women experience this more frequently than men. And there's just as many studies that show that doesn't seem to be the case. And what I think is likely, and this is just a hypothesis as far as I could find, this doesn't actually exist in the literature yet. So every time I'm on a podcast, I'm like, dissertation students, this would be a great topic, study this. My guess is that part of what separates who is having this experience and who isn't, maybe partially experiences of marginalization. And so if you're a woman who has been told her whole life, whether it's overtly or covertly, it's just the waters in which we swim culturally, you've been told you don't belong at men's tables, if people of color have been told they don't belong at white tables, if LGBTQ individuals have been told they don't belong at straight tables, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, then of course, you're going to question whether you belong at the tables, right? right? And so this is another reason why we shouldn't be calling this a syndrome because this is a systemic issue, you know? And so that's like, there are some people that are out there, like there was just a popular graduation talk given by the woman who started Girls Who Code. Her first name is Reshma. I think it's Reshma Sojani, if I'm remembering correctly. And one of the things she's saying is, there's nothing wrong with you. This is a systemic issue. So stop feeling this way, essentially, is what she's saying. And I agree there's nothing wrong with you. This is normal evolution, like we just talked about. And it's a systemic issue. But of course, we know that if we sit around and wait for the system to change, we're all going to sit here feeling like crap, feeling like we shouldn't feel like crap, and still battling us. So I think this has to be kind of a dual, you know, we have to go at this in a dual purpose, right? Yes, of course, to acknowledge and try to fix the systemic side of things. But also it's okay if you feel this way. It's normal if you feel this way and you struggle and it gets in your way. And there are ways at an individual level that you can work to push through this so it doesn't hold you back.
0: So let's go there and let's take a page out of Susan Jeffers' classic feel the fear and do it anyway. A book, admittedly, I've never read, but whose title changed my life. And I love that you basically say, listen, it's on board and it doesn't need to hold you back. You can hit control, alt delete. You can override the skunkiness of your system and, <laughs> and press on. How might a person press on through their imposterism to get the life they want? And to, I'm just going to even borrow another term that you said in the book that was so great. Like, what feelings are you willing to tolerate to get the life you want? I love that, by the way. That was so good.
1: Yeah. Like, what are you willing to have? And I think that one of the things that's really important here that I know the first time this was pointed out to me, it was that dual moment of like, wait, duh. Sometimes (laughs) like the most insightful moments you realize it's like total common sense. And then you're like, how the heck did I not realize that before? Right. And that is that if you are showing up to do things that matter to you, the stakes are high and you're going to feel worried about it, right? Like I tell a story, look, this is a true story, that you know how people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning Uh even if you don't do it for a long time, like I didn't ski for 25 years, got on, got back on snow skis and I could ski. I didn't need new lessons. Well, I got back on a bicycle after not riding a bike for 10 years and I immediately crashed. Whoa! So for me, riding a bike was not just like riding a bike.
0: <laughs>
1: but guess how much time I spent worrying about the fact that I crashed my bike? How long? Zero seconds. Because I don't give a crap about my ability to pedal a two-wheeled machine. Sure. But that experience then triggered all these thoughts about the fact that my kids at the time, either seven and nine or eight and 10, so old that they should have already know how to ride a bike and they didn't. And I went into this shame spiral about what a terrible mother I am because Mm. how could I have kids this age and not yet have taught them how to ride a bike because I desperately care about being a good mom. And so if we think about like the last time you were up at two in the morning and the wheels were spinning, I'm pretty sure you weren't worrying about like whether there's gonna be another season of Game of Thrones, even Mm. if it's your favorite show, right? Like you worry about the things you care about. And this is where imposter thoughts and feelings show up. If you didn't care about making a a contribution or competence or your skill or contributing, like being a good team member, providing for your family, like whatever it may be, you wouldn't worry about these things. Oftentimes we're worrying about like what others will think of us. And that's because as human beings, our connections are deeply important to us. And that that risk of being ousted, which, by the way, is also evolutionary in nature, right? Like early humans who hunted and gathered and traveled together had a survival advantage. And we know even in modern times that the most robust predictor of overall well-being, physical and mental well-being, is the presence of quality relationships, right? And so that, like, if people find out I'm not good enough, then I'm risking those relationships, and that is a threat, And so, of course, this pain, this emotional pain, these thoughts and feelings are going to show up in the areas that we care the most about. And so going back to what you were saying about this idea of like, do it scared, it's sort of impossible to do it any other way, because if you care about it, you're going to be scared. And if you wait until you don't feel scared, it's like the trade-off is the only way I can do things not scared is if it's stuff that I don't really care that much about. And then there's not a whole lot of vitality there.
0: Yeah, I'm not scared to stream my favorite show on Netflix, that's for sure. And I might be somewhat edified by watching it, but not as much as pushing through a presentation that I want to give that matters to me. So just the first thing is just accepting the fact and maybe even leaning into the fact that this is clearly important to me. And therefore, I'm scared and repurposing the fear as a form of this really conforms with my purpose.
1: That's exactly right. This is a bright red neon arrow telling me I am exactly where I am.
0: <laughs> love that. Right. Yes. And
1: then you ask the question like, okay, but easier said than done. Is there something we can do to make that a little more like to be a little more willing to do that? Because that, that's a hard thing. That's a hard thing to do. And I, I love to give people practices for this. We can do this right now very simply is if you fold your hands the way that feels natural. So as long as people are not driving while they're listening, they can do this and just kind of notice how that feels and it feels right. Yeah, now okay. switch your fingers so they're over by one. You know, yeah. anyone who does yoga, your yoga teacher always says to switch the fold of your hands and then notice how that feels. Feels weird. And it feels like weird. Bad it feels hand wrong. Yeah. And notice the urge to switch it back. Or
0: oh yeah, I go. couldn't really tolerate it.
1: Because that's what we respond to is that urge. Notice when you breathe in, you literally expand. And so you can use the breath as a vehicle to expand and make space for that discomfort of that funny feeling and that desire to avoid that funny feeling. And, you know, I say that people are like, well, how's that going to make me be able to do public speaking in front of other people when I'm terrified? Well, this is like training. If you told me, hey, I'd really like to run a marathon someday, but I've never even run a 5K we're not gonna go do 26.2 on Sunday, right? Like you're gonna train and you're gonna walk first and you're gonna do easy runs or you know, like the couch to 5K program where it's like really, really baby steps. And so there are lots of ways to do that where essentially what you're practicing is getting comfortable being uncomfortable or at least being willing to be uncomfortable. I think importantly, because this can be misunderstood is like we're talking about his acceptance and that doesn't mean like liking or wanting It also doesn't mean like white knuckling your way through it. This is about changing your relationship to discomfort so that you're acknowledging like, you know, this is uncomfortable and I'd rather not feel this way. And it's just a feeling. It's temporary. I can handle it. It's not dangerous. It's just uncomfortable. And we are beings that there are instances where avoiding pain makes sense, right? If you put your hand on a hot stove, you want to avoid pain so you don't get a dangerous burn and that makes sense. But when we start to apply that to our emotional world, this comes at the cost of our values, like the life we want and who we want to be and really doesn't work. It makes our life much smaller and prevents us from seeking out opportunities.
0: Love that. And one of the things that, you know, Dr. Andrew Wheel talks about is that the answer is always under our nose. If we can just control our breath and maybe power through the aversive stimulus, it is tantamount to training before that talk. I also love the idea of visualization before a talk, like imagining the crowd loving you, which can be very helpful. Uh, and the idea of perceived support, having a community, you talk about the value of community and how you kind of carry them with you. You even talk about the notion of WWJD and what you use. I, I've used this to great effect. And I even talked about my, my relationship with Ted Lasso, so to speak, in my internalized what would Ted do? But I'm just wondering if you could share a little bit about that idea because we are such social creatures. We can really hack into our systems and leverage the power of another who's not even physically with us.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I love Ted Lasso too. I feel like we should have like a moment of silence that Ted Lasso has ended. But oh, good Lord. Best show, best show ever. So WWJD came from actually from a client of mine who had had a really successful week and came back to therapy. And I said, what was the trick? Like, what was your secret to getting all this great stuff done? And she said, well, you know, whenever I had a decision, I just thought WWJD. And I went into this absolute shame spiral about being the worst therapist because I thought normally that means what would Jesus do? And I had no idea she was religious. And luckily, she rescued me and said, you know, what would Jill do? I was like, (laughs) oh. Thank God. And so I just loved this and use it with clients all the time and myself. And I don't make the clients say, what would Jill do? I let them pick their J and their (laughs) J could be Jesus, but I encourage them to choose either someone from their life who they think of as being you know, a good coach, someone who's really encouraging, or it could be a celebrity who you feel like you know. It could even be a fictional character like Ted Lasso, right? And during those kind of, I call them in the book, points of possibility, these 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 moments where you need to make a choice to either move in the direction of your values or run and hide in your comfort zone to think, what would my person do? And so for me, my person is Oprah because she's someone who has endured so many obstacles and just kicked ass at life. And I did that when I had an opportunity to give a TED Talk. I was paralyzed. I really, really did not think I could do it for various reasons. And Mm. I I walked through the whole thing in detail in the book. Truly, I just, what would Oprah do? I'm like, oh, well, that's a no-brainer. She would do the talk. And then I extended that like, well, what would she say? What would Oprah say to me if she knew that I was struggling in this way? And part of what I was struggling with was my appearance and being on camera and it was during COVID and I had gained a lot of weight and this was like a real raw spot for me. And I thought Oprah would say, you know, Jill, you're so much more than your body. And if you have a message to share, this is your professional mission. Like even if you reach one person, you need to do this. And it was those two things. I did it. And it was the most scared I have ever been professionally. And I'll be honest with you, it's very hard for me to watch still, Sheila or Kevin, both, they both Mm -hmm. pop up and have a whole lot to say about it. And I am so freaking glad I did it. And I am so proud of myself that I did it. And I wore a bright red shirt and I wore leopard print shoes because I wanted to be brave. I didn't want to hide behind my insecurity. And so it's like, it's a simple strategy, but it can be incredibly powerful in terms of really connecting with. Your values, the me that you want to be in any given moment.
0: And I love that you really pull from values. Susan Kane, who wrote a great book on introversion, Quiet, talks about the idea that when an introvert is full of conviction, and I can only imagine parenthetically, that means really congruent with their values, they appear extroverted. And let's face it, when we are doing something from a place of values, things that we really care about, we do better. We do it with conviction. And you did the same. I loved your TED talk, love this book. And I'm heartily going to recommend that everybody read this book. Final question for you Jill, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humans one skill or insight that would dramatically improve the lives of the individual and perhaps even society at large, what would that skill or insight be? And what do you imagine the effect would be on the individual as well as perhaps even society?
1: easy answer. And I already said it here. It's getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. If you think of every difficult conversation you've backed away from, every opportunity or all the overworking that you've done or the procrastinating or the fighting, it all comes from a place of responding on autopilot to an uncomfortable feeling and wanting to feel different. Mm. And I think if we could all change our relationship to our inner world so that we could become aware of those first of all and then make space and just let them be there because they're already there anyway and not choose from that place but choose from that place of values I just think it would change everything for everybody
0: could not agree more and I love friends who champion we can be that for ourselves we can be that for each other we can carry each other through a lot you talk kind of a different version of the African axiom of if you want to go fast go alone if you want to go Fargo together. I forget the one that you used, but it was a little, it was similar. And Jill, oh my gosh, I'm so happy to meet you. You are my new sister from another mister all the way across the country and cannot wait to hear how people respond to your book and this incredible work and service you've given.
1: Thank you so much, Adam. It's been so fun to be here. It was fun to chat with you before we hit record. And, you know, I (laughs) loved the episode that you did on our podcast. If your listeners haven't heard that, Psychologists Off the Clock, I have taken nuggets from that episode that I've continued to use. You know, we talked about the driveway test. Truly, it's my pleasure and joy to be here. I feel really honored. And it's so great to finally connect with you. We've been connected in these sort of you know, distant ways. And now here we are. So
0: and gone. now here we are hanging. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey, thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.